Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alfreda, Georgia. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you'd like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. If you like this podcast, please subscribe in your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So we're sort of continuing a, a, an impromptu mini-series here about about how the workplace has changed and is changing as a result of the pandemic and what we're seeing in this trans-pandemic period as uh, uh, more people become vaccinated and and the economy continues to reopen and and resume or achieve some semblance of normalcy. And in the last few weeks, we've covered um, talking about hiring people with criminal records. We've talked about hiring people with disabilities. uh, last week we published we published a, a, um, a conversation on um, attending and sponsoring live events, and today we're going to talk about the, the labor force a little bit from a different angle, and, and that is um, changing careers. Or should I change careers? And you know the, the the labor market is 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 behaving in a way that that most of us have not seen in our lifetimes. I, I can't remember anything even approaching this since maybe the dot-com bubble of the, of the late nineties. But even this, I think, I think frankly is a different animal because it's much more economy wide as opposed to uh, technology specific. And, and what we're seeing at least what I'm seeing is that our society's relationship with work has changed, and I don't think any of us really saw this coming to this extent. Now, there's a there's a notion that there were some canaries in the coal mine. Labor force participation has been on the decline for the last decade or so, um, but but to really not really not to this extent. I think I think most of us, myself included, I'm certainly no no great theoretical mind here. Most of us thought that once we all had the opportunity to return to work, that we would do. Uh, that we would do just that. You know, we've we've heard about everything from Zoom fatigue to isolation, depression to uh, you know ev- everything, you know everything in between. And, and now we're he- now instead we're finding ourselves with with labor shortages. We're finding that we're finding that that people are demanding more to be uh, enticed to go back into the workforce. And I think a lot of people, frankly, have simply rearranged their priorities. They've said, you know, look, I'm life is too short and um, I'm willing to make a little bit less, maybe even a lot less. I'm willing to adjust my lifestyle or our lifestyle if it's a two income family going to one 
in order for us to build the lives that we want. And that's putting employers and business owners in a little bit of a bind. It's not like you can put a gun to people's head and force them to, to go, to go back to work. And one of the other dynamics that uh, I think is changing or is occurring. And, and I think it is a good thing economy wide, even though I think that there are some, there are clearly some industries that are, are a bit victimized this and even caught a little bit, a little bit flat footed. I think if we're fair is I think people are also changing careers. They've taken the time that they had in the last year whether they were laid off, they were furloughed, forced to uh, get out of the workforce because they had family care obligations or health concerns or, or whatnot. And you know, happily, instead of just sort of sitting around and watching Jeopardy reruns or whatever they do on daytime TV, do they do, they do soap operas anymore? I, I, I have no idea. Yeah. I, I, I don't miss so. them. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, people are now retooling to assume a, you know, uh, assume a different career or maybe the first career they've had in their lives. And so I think the topic of changing careers in this environment is particularly timely because, you know, my life experience tells me that for every one person that's changed or is changing their career, there are another five or six out there that are actively, that are actively thinking about it. And, and um, yeah, I'll, 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 leave with this before I introduce our guest. I saw a quote actually this morning by Adam Grant, who is the author of a fantastic book that I read earlier this year called Atomic Habits and many other important business books. And he's a, a professor and a researcher of organizational theory at, uh, at Wharton. But he wrote that it's better to lose the past two years of progress than to waste the next 20. I, I, I thought that was kind of profound. Um, and if you look at the data, the average U.S. worker may expect to have something like 11 jobs in their lifetimes, but but how many people actually change careers? That that data is pretty sketchy, and all I saw numbers out there, there's nothing I thought was sufficiently robust that I, I want to quote it. But I'm sure people don't change careers 11 times in their in their lifetimes. But we are a very fluid work source, is the is the point. So joining us to talk about this, and uh, she's a recidivist. She's this is her second time on the program is Lauren Fernandez of the Fernandez Company. At the Fernandez Company, they generate new revenue streams for companies, particularly in the food and hospitality industries. They diversify revenue streams outside the four walls of a restaurant by creating new channels of revenue in the areas of organic expansion, franchising, product development, and licensing. They create this growth for their clients through their process of strategic consulting, management support, and investment. Um, Lauren is the founder of the Fernandez Company, the culmination of over a decade of practice as a trusted brand consultant and legal advisor with all kinds of clients from startups to multinational companies. Before forming the Fernandez Company, Lauren served as the general counsel for Focus Brands, where she was instrumental in the rapid growth of the licensing program. She holds an undergraduate degree from Stetson University and a JD and MBA from, uh, from Emory University. She serves in the advisory board for the Atlantic Community Food Bank and is a dedicated fundraiser for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and was named 2015 Woman of the Year by them for raising nearly $95,000 in less than three months for cancer research. She's a native of the Tampa Bay area, but has lived in the Atlanta area for over 15 years. Lauren Fernandez, welcome back to the program. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me back. So um, I'd love you just to start and tell us kind of in your own words, what what is the background for your own career change? You know, yeah. I only learned recently. And again, one of the fun parts about this program is I get, I learn things about people. Some sometimes people I've known for a lot of years and things just never came up, but I learned that you in fact started out 
as as an attorney before you became the restaurant maven that you are. Yeah. Tell us about that 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 origin story. How did that all come to come to come to be? Um so I knew I wanted to be a JD MBA. Um I knew I wanted to go to law school but was pretty adamant on going to a school that had a top 20 MBA and law program and in touring several of them chose Atlanta. It was like birds singing tulips everywhere. It was just a beautiful April spring day when I visited here and it made the Northeastern schools I was looking at pale by comparison. So clearly you don't have allergies, but go ahead. I'm constantly on Claritin actually point of fact, but um, I, really enjoyed my visit to Atlanta. It was relatively close to my home base in Florida. And here I ended up and I've been here for over 19 years. And so my journey is a little bit about the balance between my law degree and my MBA. And in fact, when I finished the program at Emory in 2006, um, it was a tough time. The economy was already starting to tank a little bit. And I got some really good advice from another in-house counsel who was also a JD MBA. And she said, listen, when you leave, if you decide to go practice marketing, you're going to miss an opportunity to be apprenticed at a law firm and really learn what it is to practice law. And it's very hard to go back and do that later if you choose a law career later. And that couldn't have been more right. Um, I was extremely fortunate to land at Gardner Groth, a very storied Um, and long-tenured boutique intellectual property firm here in Atlanta. And they brought me on and taught me the basics of intellectual property and litigation and licensing and product development. And for that, I am eternally grateful because that's a huge investment in young lawyers to have to train them up. And I was there for a little over three or four years um, before I moved in-house. And that was the first of many steps I took in my career to move closer and closer, closer to the business of my clients. Because as an attorney, I always viewed my role as really understanding the business so I could put the proper context around the problem and help them navigate into white space, not necessarily to make decisions for my clients, even as it res- with respect to the legal risk, but more or less risk management and kind of moving into white space. And so I landed at a division of Novartis here in Atlanta, which at the time was called SEBA Vision and is now Alcon post-merger. And I became their associate general counsel and global head of trademarks and domain names. So they took two roles and smushed them together for me. And at that, I was just really so fortunate to land right at the exact time they were doing a major product dev. It was the first time they had pulled a product out of R&D in 10 years. So I got to be part of a billion dollar product launch in over 140 countries, which is right in my wheelhouse. And that experience there was phenomenal. But as things happen. You know, the company changed. We went through a merger and I was working through kind of what my next step would be within Novartis and kind of talking to them about that when I got a phone call one day from an MBA friend of mine who, you know, we had a good working relationship. We were also good friends outside of work. And she would call me from time to time just to ask a trademark question, a licensing question, what have you. And she said, would you come and meet with our CEO? And I said, yeah, sure. What's going on? And she said, well, I sort of printed out your LinkedIn profile and he wants to talk to you. And I was like, Oh, oh, okay. So that was the origin story of how I ended up at Focus Brands. Focus at the time was looking for not only in-house legal counsel, but also someone who had specific expertise in product development and licensing to help grow their program. And so 
when I went to focus and made that decision, I was leaving a pharma career behind, which for most lawyers, um, that's a very lucrative golden handcuffs all the way in-house job. And with working for a phenomenal company, I loved working there. Um, But when I made the leap, I made it specifically for one reason. I met with the CEO at the time, Russ Umfenhauer, and I was very compelled that he saw me as a business person and that he wanted to invest in me and teach me the ropes of restaurants and franchising and really felt like it was important for me to get training. And so I went over, I met the executive team, the rest of the brand presidents, the rest of the C-suite. And I thought, if I'm going to make this jump, I'm going to make it to here because this is where I'm going to get the training that I need to really be in an industry that's more aligned with who I am personally and professionally. And so it wasn't too much of a leap as an attorney because most intellectual property matters, you know, transfer that's fully translatable. And to the extent that you do product dev and it's in regulated markets, that's food and drug administration. So drugs being obviously a little harder in some cases to get through for approval. So moving over to food was a pretty easy leap in that respect. Um, So off I went to focus and that was yet another kind of step in my career. And I think I got a lot of flack from that from people who were in my peer group were like, what are you doing leaving pharma? That's ridiculous. And I said, no, I, I like the runway I have with this company. It makes sense. Um, So I went over to Focus. I headed up their legal department for over three years, um, grew it from me and a part-time paralegal (laughs) to a team of over 24 people, um, ran the legal department and the franchise administration at the same time that I was helping grow the licensing program and a lot of their international deals. Um, So it was a wonderful place to learn from other executives, um, just really had a phenomenal talent group around me and the peers there. and I can't speak enough, uh, high, highly enough about that leadership. And, you know, again, things just changed. So about three years in, we had a leadership change and things just got shuffled. And it was just starting to feel like that time I was getting calls, um, you know, recruiters were calling and it was it was just an interesting moment. It was a pivot point in my career. And I had been a general counsel at that point for three years And I was in my mid thirties and I thought, I have really checked the box on my legal career. I feel really like I've done it all. I really want to move more into the business side. And one of the things that kept happening, Mike, was I was going on these interviews for, you know, publicly traded food companies, restaurant companies. I was meeting with CEOs, meeting with boards and their vision of what a general counsel would look like and talk like was very different than how I was used to operating more involved in the business engaged in finding white space, brainstorming, really charting a path for the company. And it was just making me feel really sick to my stomach. I just had this like really bad pit about it, mm-hmm. even though the jobs were all super lucrative and really interesting. Um, didn't really feel aligned with my compass at that point. And I'll never forget this. I went out and had lunch one day with my former CEO's mentor. And I said, I told him, I just isn't lining up. I'm having trouble finding another, you know, CEO who looked at me the way that you did and treated me like a business partner. And he said, yeah, kind of like, good luck with that. And he said, why don't you own a restaurant? Like, why don't you actually operate a restaurant? That's something you haven't done. And Mike, in the industry, a lot of restaurant executives come up in the industry and, I had, you know, a very different background. I have a college degree and two postgraduate degrees. And yeah, I'd worked in in hospitality and restaurants, but, you know, summer jobs and never like actually really gotten my, you know, my, 
gotten it handed to me in a restaurant, so to speak. And, um, you know, I took that advice and I really, it stuck with me and I couldn't shake it. So I started literally shopping for franchises. I had some money to invest and I thought, okay, like, let me find one that maybe I can buy by myself and I'll operate it as a business. And then I can hire someone to help me run it. And so around that time, I had started the Fernandez Company. It's our consulting firm, um, which still exists. Um, we do a lot of consulting work around product development, uh, lines of revenue around licensing and product dev, especially for restaurant companies. And I had a decent client base and things were going, but I still wanted to kind of invest in a restaurant. So um, I'd been looking for about a month and I bumped into through a mutual friend, an investor um, who actually ended up becoming a business partner of mine. And we formed Origin Development Group for the sole purpose of going out to find restaurants to invest in and to grow and operate and hopefully realize some benefits out of that. So we started Origin and I became a restaurant operator within maybe six months. We ended up closing a deal to purchase three chicken salad chick restaurants and the entire territory for Atlanta, Augusta, and Athens for the brand. And three years later, we had 11. We had three non-traditional locations, and we had three more locations under development when we ended up selling the entire uh, company's assets, in fact, all the chicken salad assets over back to Chicken Salad Chick's parent company. Um, So it was very much like a a, a slow progression and then a sudden progression into restaurant operations. Um, But what I will say from that was every step that I took in my career was towards the goal of getting more and more and more onto the business side. And I think for me, one of the important risks that was certainly worth it with Origin was I had ownership in the company. So I wanted to be able to help steer the boat. I had an assumption of the development obligations, like actually opening restaurants, but also the daily operations of the restaurants themselves. So that was um, certainly an education by experience. And I learned more in that three-year period than I think I did in my entire four years at Emory. And that is saying a lot because I've packed a lot into that four years at Emory, because I, I think there's nothing that can really substitute when you are losing money in a restaurant and you're trying to figure out where you're, you can cut and make sacrifices and drive profit margin is the most real world education of a profit and loss statement. And suddenly all of these things that I had learned in grad school were coming so alive for me and so real. And so they were tools in my belt that I hadn't really used and quite really those muscles I hadn't flexed before and really being able to put them into good use in our restaurants was extraordinary. And then just continuing to learn, like we had great support in the field from the brand. Um, We had a wonderful franchise business consultant. The ops team was fantastic. So we, I was just like a sponge. I just, I constantly was asking every manager, why do you do that that way? Who taught you that? Like, tell me more. And I just became almost annoying. And then how, how much I was asking why questions to get them to teach me. (laughs) Um, And I think that that just takes a little bit of humility, but I really was hungry to learn a little bit more about restaurant operations and to be a really good operator. Um, And that's, you know, where that, that part of the story ended. Um, And that brings us to where I took a sabbatical (laughs) (laughs) to help figure out what I wanted to do next. But that was, that was the progression really from intellectual property attorney to restaurant owner. Um, 
you know, of course, until we we get to the place where we're operating full course today, my restaurant development and investment firm. So, you know, so many interesting things to to kind of go back and pick on and 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 we will. The first question I have is is what what made you want to get into law in the first place? And the reason I asked that question is because the follow-up question is going to be, um, I, I seem to know a lot of people that trained to be lawyers and then didn't last very long in the industry. Um, one of my closest friends, he was my RA in college, just moved to New, <clears throat> just moved to New Zealand, but we even, he lived here in Atlanta for a long time. And after getting his law degree, it took him about a year before he went into technology, basically. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, so if the first part of the question is, why did you want to get into law? And then we'll come back to the second part in a second. Yeah. Great questions. Wow. Okay. So I, throughout high school, my parents were very much like, hey, look, you're good at a lot of stuff, but let's try some different things so that you can narrow it down. I think if you ask them, they were probably super concerned that I would go and try and do too much at college, which happened anyway. But um, you know, I did a whole summer with marine biology, like rescuing turtles and dolphins and doing necropsies on, it was, it was an experience. Um, and then I really loved architecture and construction. I did a whole summer with Habitat for Humanity, you know, so my parents very much encouraged me to have practical experience And one of those experiences was specifically working or summer interning in high school with a law firm. And I think it was actually my dad who suggested he's a physician. And my mom at the time was an RN and working on her um, PhD um, in mental health and counseling. And they, so we had all this medicine in the family and I was kind of like, I don't know what to do, but I don't think I want to do that. And my dad said, you know, you're in moot court. You do all this public speaking stuff. You've done all this these competitions with science fair where arguably like the science is great, but what you're really good at is pitching what you've done. Why don't you go like, why don't you go intern with one of our lawyer friends? And that was really where it started. And I just fell in love with it. I mean, I loved the Bates numbering, like this numbering on, I just, I'm so organized and really kind of compulsively. So, so they had this big litigation going on. I got to like Xerox stuff and collate things and <laughs> just asking questions about the case the whole time. And it kind of sucked me in at the time I was an unabashed, like completely obsessed with law and order, which is, you know, criminal law, but it seemed to be a good fit. And everyone who knew me was like, oh yeah, obviously she's going to be a lawyer. So um, what was really funny was I, I went to, I did get a scholarship as part of my undergrad to go pre-law, but when it came down to it and I took the LSAT and everything was groovy, um, we actually, my mom became pretty critically ill and, and, um, had lymphoma. And so I took a year between college and grad school and kind of just put everything on pause. Um, and in that time, nine 11 happened so we really had to do like a, as a family, I mean, with my mom being sick and with 9-11 and the economy suffering as a result. And there was just, there was, there was a lot going on. And so I had a chance to reevaluate what I wanted to do. And really when it came down to it, I had already taken the LSAT. It was fairly easy for me to take the GMAT. Uh, I think that's what it was, the GMAT yep, and yep. Um, start applying to JD MBA programs. Cause I had a very narrow window of time. We had come back from cancer treatment with my mom They had just allowed air travel again. It was just a very crazy time. And I remember sitting there with her and she typewriter people like typewriter, because this is 
back in like 19, what was it? No, it was two, 2001, two, right? Two. Um, we're sitting there like banging out the applications, you know, on the typewriter. And I remember her saying to me, you have to apply to a JD MBA program. Like you just have to, she's like, you're going to be behind a desk running a company someday. You're going to want that MBA. Don't just don't just pick schools that have both really good programs. And I was like, okay. And so we narrowed it down and you know, applied to like five or six schools. And, and that was just really what got it going. And I'm going to be honest, Mike, like I got to law school and about three months in, my mom got sick again mm-hmm. and I was away from my family and I had a complete meltdown. I mean, I just, something had happened at school. I think someone, you know, one of those classic stories of someone hiding a book in the library, like actually happened. I was like, this is ridiculous. Like <laughs> these people are crazy. And I called my lawyer mentor friend back at home and I said, you know, what, what should I leave? Like, I don't know that this is really for me. And he said, no, you should stay. You should see this through the first year is always the hardest. Just see it through next year. You can start your MBA program. It's going to be okay. And so I really struggled when my biggest problem was I loved my MBA program so much. And this is after I'd already enjoyed my law training and there's a special product commercialization and development track at Emory called the Tiger Program, of which I think I might have been the first or the second graduating class. And I've been a teacher I, for them. Yeah. Okay, great. Full circle here. Yep. So um, I loved the program at the time. It was run by Margot Bagley, who's phenomenal. And I really loved my law experience there. And then I loved the business school even more. So for me, it was just like popping out of that program. I was like, which where which path do I take? And as I mentioned earlier, I ultimately made the decision to become an apprenticed effectively lawyer as a junior lawyer, um, an associate at a law firm. So that that's how I ended up in law to start with. So I'm I'm curious. I mean, this is only relevant to a segment of the audience, but it's mm-hmm. my show, so I get to ask the questions. And that question is: I've observed that a lot of you know, I think. I seem to see a lot more people change careers from law than from yeah. any other professional field that I can think of. I'm curious if your experience is like that too. And if so, why do you think that is? So many thoughts here, but I'll try and keep it short. Um, so first and foremost, the United States pumps out like four times as many lawyers every year as any other country in the world. So it's my personal opinion that we just, we, we pump out a lot of lawyers. There's a lot of kids who, kids, um, adults who go to law school and it's, you know, seems like a professional career that can have multiple different, uh, can be translated into multiple different things. Like I, if I, and for reasons that you just mentioned, like I know multiple attorneys who never sat for the bar or sat for the bar and practiced for a year and then transitioned to something else. And so I think there's a bit of a mythology out there that you can use the law degree for whatever you want. Well, true, but the law degree also costs three years of your life and you roughly $200,000, probably even more now. Probably more Um, now, yeah. Just throwing that out there. I mean, of course, there's state schools and everything. And I had scholarship money. So, you know, just it is what it is. But, you know, I think there's a cost benefit analysis that needs to happen there. I remember my dad, I was, you know, 20, 21, 22, sitting down with me and making me, he forced me to make an Excel spreadsheet on the ROI of me going to Emory over another school that was literally going to pay me 
in addition to paying everything else is going to pay me $11,000 a year to go to school there. And he was like, prove to me why you need to do this. And I did the math, I did the math for him. And I showed him my payoff timeline and all this kind of stuff, which of course, in the economy that ensued was not really what happened, but that's a story for another day. No way you could have known that. So I think I don't regret it at all. I love my Emory experience. I'm a huge proponent of the school, but just to say that. Um, I do think that that's number one is there's a lot of lawyers that are kind of getting pumped out into the market, right? So that's kind of number one. Number two is in the United States, and I'm going to just compare this to Spain where I have a little bit more like firsthand knowledge. The process of going to law school doesn't necessarily teach you practical skills as an attorney. That is shifting a little bit more as we get a little more progressive, but we, it's still very Socratic method, the same first year for everyone. And so it is considered unusual to have a very heavy practicum load where it's practical application of law and teaching you actual legal skills. So when you come out of law school, you don't even know what you don't know. I mean, you basically know how to take the bar and that's about it. So when true to my form, when I was in high school and in college, I took every internship opportunity that was offered to me at Emory. I think I had a total of four, maybe even five that I got credit for and was able to actually get my foot in the door at a couple of companies. I worked at Singular Wireless, which then became AT&T. I worked at Coke twice on the legal side and on the marketing side um, and various other places. But you know, I don't think that we really invest time in training lawyers how to be lawyers. So you pop out and then you basically have another two to three years of learning how to be a lawyer. And that means a firm usually has to invest in you to really give you that level of training and expertise. So imagine coming out of grad school, you've got all this debt you know, you are sitting in a chair in a firm, probably not making the cushy salary that you thought. And your life is literally you draft a document and it's blood red with red lines because that's the accepted method of teaching young lawyers how to be a lawyer. You redline the heck out of their work and you go over it with them. If if you're lucky, you have a partner who will like review it with you and coach you and mentor you. Um, And, you know, every single minute of your day is accounted for. You have a billable rate, you have to bill a certain number of hours a day, which is, you know, and that has to be collected dollars that they're not writing off, right, as a firm. So that's your efficiency ratio. So you've just effectively come out of a three-year program, you have a graduate degree, and it's just facts. I mean, it's just how law firms make money. It's how the system works. And now there are a variety of different models that are different these days, but that can be a very soul crushing experience. I'm not, I'm not, I just will speak for myself. I had a great firm. I had wonderful mentors, but I was literally like a two years in, I was sick to my stomach with the stress literally. And it wasn't until I went in-house that that went away. And I, the only other time in my life I've ever had that feeling of like extreme exhaustion and anxiety was when I was operating 11 restaurants <laughs> and trying to juggle too much. And I kind of burned myself out, you know, this is, you know, 15 years later, but um, that is a very stressful environment and you're being paid to put your opinion out and you always, it's always a judgment call, right? It's never black and white. That's why lawyers have a job. There's shades of gray. 
all in the middle. And that's why lawyers are important in what they do in assessing and, and managing risk for clients. And there's always kind of, especially in intellectual property, where there's very clear deadlines on patents and trademark filings, and even for copyright matters, there's always the looming monster of malpractice, right? So yeah. you, you, I think that this has sort of created this um, blender maybe, or like, it's just, it just chews people up and some people thrive in those environments. You know, my brother and my sister-in-law are still attorneys and practice. Um, and, you know, I have plenty of friends and peers who still work and practice in the industry, but I think there's a, there's, there's a side to it where it's not necessarily aligned with what a lot of people think it's going to be. And, you know, there's also that perpetuation of like, oh, I just finished college. And I, you know, I have heard this said, I think the laws, law schools are very accepting and embracing of applicants. You don't have to have any experience. Meanwhile, over in my business program at Emory, I was probably the least experienced business person that got into our program. And I already had a full page, two pager business resume that had nothing to do with law. And so there's, it's just a jump from college to law school. And so I think that's part of it too. Um, I'm sure I missed some things in there. I just, it's sad to me because I think Mike, the reality is there's a high rate of depression amongst lawyers, alcoholism, substance abuse, and a lot of other mental health issues that as an industry, we don't really talk about very well. And I think that's really sad because I think fundamentally um, it's a byproduct of what the kind of institutional structures of the, you know, whether it's a firm or in-house, I don't know that it makes a difference. It's just kind of part of how the profession works, if you know what I mean. And especially in the United States, I don't think that it's universally true. I'm speaking about the United States here. Yeah. I wonder how many people too go to law school because they were good students, but they don't know what to do next. I mean, if I had had to guess, I think it was roughly a fourth of my law school class. Yeah. No, no joke. Um, And I I think it'd be really interesting to go back now and kind of look at where they all are. And I do follow like a number of them on Facebook or LinkedIn. Um, But I have noticed that it's my JDMBA uh, colleagues who are the first to jump you know, who either never practiced law or practiced to a point and then made a successful leap over into other business ventures. Oh, for sure. For sure. So let's talk about that, that transition. And and your story is interesting in that uh, it, it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but one, it sounds fairly gradual. And the second, it sounds fairly organic, right? You didn't, it doesn't sound like you had this many epiphany moments where you said, I got to get out of A and then move into B, right? But rather, I mean, that may have been may have been parts of the case, I suppose, moving from billable to in-house counsel, but the rest of it sort of sounded like people were pursuing you for your skills and then kind of moving you away from practicing law directly into doing other things. Is that, is that a fair way to characterize it? I think I was always looking for those opportunities. Okay. And so I one of the key things I want to, say here for anyone who's thinking of making a a big leap, like a big leap is really a big leap because you're going drastically from point A to point D. And so I knew that I wanted to get out of the law eventually and into the more business side, 
you know, when I was at Novartis, that could have been product moving over to product dev that could have been moving over into the marketing department. I'm sort of was always analyzing other opportunities to kind of make that lateral move over. Because in my mind, you want to take all the aggregate skills that you've developed and just sort of make a lateral step over or up, you know, to help get you to the end goal. So you're right. I didn't like leave Novartis and go, oh, I'm going to go over into Focus and then someday I'm going to own a restaurant. No, I mean, I learned a lot when I was at Focus and I saw all these franchisees like buying restaurants and just absolutely crushing it and just doing great as business people. And I thought, well, there's something to this, which was just sort of in the back of my mind. And then when opportunities presented themselves for me to be able to do that and be more entrepreneurial, it made sense to kind of take that kind of risk because to me, it was a step over as opposed to being a giant jump from A to Z. You know, it was just so much more, it does seem more organic in that respect, but I think it was sort of always the plan. Um, And I think the key to that, Mike, is I'm very clear on what I'm good at, but I'm also really clear on what I'm not good at. Um, And it's something that I think when people are very confident and put together and poised and you look at this impressive resume, whether you see it on LinkedIn or wherever you go, oh, she must have really had a plan for that. No, but I knew I knew myself. And, you know, humbly, I also know what I'm not capable of and what I'm not good at. And that's something that I use to build really great teams around me because I play to my weaknesses and their strengths. And I know how to hire for that. And um, really how to energize and motivate people. And that's been something that's helped me kind of make those juncture, those big junctures feel more like a sidestep. You know, so, so that that's really interesting the way that you characterize that. So, but so an overarching thread that strikes me that I think is potentially very instructive is when you are making these career changes and I'm going to, I'm going to, I think they sound plural to me. You may disagree, but this is semantic. Um, You were not necessarily running away from something as you were running towards something else. Yeah, but I I, I just hate to characterize negatively. I'm just a super opt. I'm pragmatic, but I'm very optimistic. So I'm never going to cast the law or the practice of law in a negative light. Yeah. But let's talk about that. So, you know, there was a moment when I was sitting at my desk in focus, we had had a change in, in, you know, upper leadership and it was really late at night. And I was one of two people left in the building. And I thought to myself, what am I doing? Is this really what I want with my life? Like what, what really like just had that moment, which we may call an epiphany that I was like, you know, maybe this isn't worth it anymore. Why am I working this hard? What am I trying to prove? And I think if I had to really, really identify, there have been two major jumps for me. One was leaving the law and kind of starting a consulting firm and opening restaurants. And this next one where I started my own restaurant development and investment firm. And in both of those moments, I had to let go of what everyone else thought of me. I had to let go of what everyone else thought my next career step should be. I had to not give a, you know what, about what the next thing on my LinkedIn profile was going to be and have the confidence that whatever I chose next was going to be not only a learning experience, but a great experience and adventure for me. And that seemed more exciting to me than sitting at a desk. And I'm not going to lie in that moment, I did some math and I thought, (laughs) 
you know, you think the salary is great and you think the title's great. And then you realize how hard you're working is essentially less money than I was making in college, which is crazy to think about. Um, and it wasn't about that though. You know, it was just sort of having a validation moment that, yeah, maybe I need to start thinking of other things. And then I have my lifeboat. They're like my informal board of directors for Lauren. And I started putting calls into people and saying, Hey, listen, what would you think if I told you I was going to start a consulting firm and sort of just slowly not practice law anymore? And they were like, yes, you should do that. You're, you're good. You've checked the box. Your career's great. Like no one would ever say that you left the law too early. I think you'd be great at it. You should do that. Um, and I started getting a lot of thumbs ups and like, yeah, do it. And then, you know, I did it and it was scary. And then I invested in some restaurants with a partner and that was scary too, because I think you have to have the courage to accept that you're kind of boldly going where you haven't gone before. And so you leave the comfort of being an expert and at the top of your game to not really knowing how to fix a walk-in cooler in a restaurant is this big. That's big, right? Like there's something very humbling about taking the law degree down off the wall in an executive office, putting it away in a closet and putting on a hairnet and clocks. And that's literally what my life became. And I did it. I did it on purpose because I wanted that experience and I wanted to really be able to say, and as we do all the time now with full course, like we've walked the walk, we understand it. Like we speak operator, we've been there, we'll be there with you. So we're not just investing in your restaurant. We've actually run them ourselves. So all of those things just to say, Mike, like, yeah, Maybe we are kind of running from some things, but I think I'd rather think of it as running towards the runway. Sometimes you just hit a wall and you're like, I've done all I can do here. And things change in companies too. And I don't, I wouldn't consider that necessarily as much running away as just sort of, let's just use the phrase finding white space or runway. <laughs> Good. Well, I mean, that, that's exactly how your story comes across. And, and I, I, you know, to me, I think that's an important mentality because when you are running to something, I think that that, frankly, I think that's a mindset that makes you, puts you in a position to make a better decision, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you're running away from something, you're in crisis, you have emotion, emotional baggage that I think is associated with running away that, yeah. that, that interferes with a good intellectual decision process, right? And it can lead to, it can lead to mistakes, doesn't mean there weren't negative things that were kind of nudging you towards something. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you were leaving one, one plane of heaven to move to another plane of heaven, never, never, you know, so, so to speak. But I do think that I do think that your, that your mentality, that it was all about, it, again, it wasn't about running away from something, but here's another opportunity. I'm going to grab it. Um, I think, I think that's an underrated and, and underappreciated driver behind a successful versus a less than successful career change. I couldn't have said it better. And I think that what the scariest moment for me was when I literally had to create my own runway. So I mentioned earlier, I took a sabbatical, which anyone who knows me, (laughs) I've been working nonstop since I was probably about 14. And I, when we sold the company, I was pretty late in 39. So it was, I was, uh, it was just at the end of December 18, I was still 39. I was about to turn 40. And I told everyone publicly, I was going to take three months off, but 
my husband and I knew that I was actually taking off six months to a year and I took the full year and I'm actually so enormously proud of that. Like it actually gives me a little bit of a teary eyed moment because I think when you take a minute to really think about what you've been through and to put some parentheses on it and to really think hard about what you've learned and what you still need to learn and what was humbling about it, where can you still grow and having that moment, which was a year, (laughs) um, which I'm so blessed I had that opportunity, but I think sometimes just taking that moment and I, I went to, I'm a huge fan of Ina Garden, the Barefoot Contessa, and she just reminds me of my mom, just everything about her spirit and her personality. Plus, I love the way she cooks. And so I went to one of her book signings and she said something to me that literally I just started, I was, I was still a restaurant operator at the time, but I saw the horizon because she said something so profound. It just smacked me upside the head. And I took out my phone and I started taking notes. And what she described was the process of selling the restaurant, the, the shop and the restaurant Barefoot Contessa and selling it to new owners and not knowing what to do with herself. And so she rented this office space upstairs because she had to consult with them still. And she would just go in there and sit there and like do the New York Times crossword puzzle and like read old cookbooks. And, you know, she was just basically sitting there at their beck and call, but she made a, a routine for herself to go in and just kind of sit there so that she could let inspiration come to her. And in that moment, she looked over at a coffee table and four of her favorite cookbooks were on the coffee table and they were all published by the same publisher. And she thought, well, I own all the recipes. I've just documented them for them downstairs. Let me just fire off an email and see what happens. She fires off an email and the next day they're like, when can, when can you start? And here's your advance. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how she started her first cookbook, which then led to a television show, which by the way, she says she said no to like four times. And then her story of how they got her in front of a camera is hilarious, hmm. but I'll save that for another day. But the, the moral of her story was sometimes you just have to take time and make the time to let the next step come to you. And that year I was probably about six months in when I really started seeing the problems that I was having as an operator and a restaurant developer and understanding the financing in the middle and kind of how all of those things work together was an endemic problem with restaurant growth in our industry. And that's why a lot of one and two unit restaurants don't ever make it to 10 and don't make it from 10 to 20. And by the way, that's where the exponential ROI is for restaurant owners. It's not in a one and a half multiple times profit margin when you sell one restaurant it's at 11x when you sell 10, right? Yeah. So really thinking through that problem and how I could help bring up other minorities and women in ownership in the industry. And I started brainstorming with my life vote, with my informal board of directors, like, hey, like if I started a company and its stated agenda was to fix X, Y, and Z problems, what would it look like and how would we start it? And I had the luxury of six months to plan out what it was going to look like. And then the pandemic happened. (laughs) So I had even more time really to really think about what it was going to look like, what its mission and purpose was going to be, and to create that runway for not just me, but for our team. And that is hands down the most exciting 
but terrifying thing that I've ever done in my career because it's the really truthfully, it's the first time I've made that sidestep into something that I fully created, right? Even when I was a consultant with Fernanda's company and we started that, like it was, I was doing what I was doing for focus for, you know, other, you know, companies, like just basically helping them on their legal issues, helping them brainstorm about, you know, how to add more revenue to their business. It was, it was consulting work. Yes, it wasn't legal work, but it was not as big a step as this one over to full course. You know what I mean? So I I think that there's some magic in kind of taking that pause and really reflecting on where you've come from and where you want to go next and really building out that runway, not just for you, but for the team that you want to bring with you. So let me, let me pause a little bit and and talk and ask you a question about, about full course. Cause you mentioned what I'm hearing from you is that was the, that was the first transition that you made where you really were starting, we're starting and embarking on something totally new or pretty much totally new. Mm-hmm. Some might call it starting at the bottom. I don't like that term, but maybe, maybe at a flat footed start is the best way to, to put it. <laughs> so you've been doing that for a while now and you, you have an interesting knack for timing, right? You became a lawyer in the worst job market for lawyers ever, right? It was, it was the Hiroshima of, of the jo- yeah, job market for lawyers. Pretty much. And now you're doing that in the restaurant industry too, right? I mean, they're going yeah. through a, a, a charitably a seismic shift. Mm-hmm. Are you, are you yet comfortable in that role? Or if, if you are comfortable, how long did it sort of take you before you felt like, yeah, I've, I've quote transitioned into this role and this is now me. Um, great question. So we signed our first clients January 1st and that was the day I took the law degree down off the wall. No kidding. Yeah. It's actually rolled up in my closet and I had a personal thing with myself and I, and I said this to anyone who kind of gave me crap for having my degrees up on the wall. Cause I, I have gotten crap for it over my career, believe it or not. Um, God. It is, but not really. If you think about the industries I've worked in, not really. I mean, in Novartis, it was kind of a joke because there would be patent attorneys that we worked with who had like three PhDs. You know, it's just like crazy smart people in the company. But I would always tell people, I'm taking them down when they're paid for. So if you want to write me a check... I'll take nice. them down for you right now. And I've been saying that for 20 years, you know, um, you know, 15, 20 years. So um, they are in fact paid for. And I'm very proud of that. And, but I took them down and I put them away. I took them out of their frames and I rolled them up. And I did that because I felt like I didn't need anyone else's approval of what I was doing. And it, for the first time in my career, I think I finally shed the last layer of needing anyone else's permission or okay, or blessing to do this. And that's a really pivotal moment. I think a lot of us get stuck um, and worrying about what our parents think, what our spouses are going to think, what people are going to think if they look at a gap on their resume. Um, you know, I, I just spoke last week to an attorney who was concerned that jumping from job A to B in less than like three years was going to be problematic. And I'm like, not in this. Are you kidding me? Not in this environment. Yep. And not at, certainly not at your level of expertise. Like that's the kind of stuff we worried about when we were like baby lawyers. Like, come on now. Like, no. So I think that we carry those around and it's so heavy and you don't take a pause to really think about you and what you've learned and give yourself credit for that and where you want to go to really challenge yourself 
and maximize your talents and skills, you're going to keep listening to all of that noise. And I think that that pause is so important. It really is. Um, You know, my parents have said to me my entire life, you have an extraordinary amount of talent and skill, but what we expect of you is that you use it in service to others. You use it to the best of your ability and in service to others. And even for me for years, I'm not going to lie. That was a lot of pressure. That was a lot of noise. And I had to let go of that too. Um, Because even though that was a really huge guiding principle for me, my entire career at the end of the day, it's not what got me to where I am in this last jump. Um, I think that really having that pause and thinking long and hard about where I felt led to take the next step was very important. We're talking to Lauren Fernandez and the topic is, should I change careers? Um, we don't have time for a couple more, more questions, but there's so many that, that we could ask. But one I want to make sure to get out there is, is there anything that you might do differently in terms of how you made your decisions to, to change or you know, evolve your career over time? Anything wow. you might do, do differently? Wow. Um, yeah, I think there's one thing that I realize now. I was very sheepish about self-promotion, about advocating for me within the company, um, advocating for me professionally within my peer group. I had no issue doing presentations if I was asked or going out and, um, you know, helping give information out and being a, a part of academia, if you will, like the kind of sort of the academic or intellectual pursuit of what I was doing as an attorney and indeed became recognized as an expert in both licensing, branding, co-branding, and in product development as an attorney um, in the space. And I'm very proud of that. But I think what I missed as an executive, especially comparing to where my peers are at, was you know, the attorneys are sometimes given the shaft, even inside of a company where they're a cost center. They don't generate revenue for the company. You know, they want to be um, seen but not heard. Um, you know, it's kind of like the imperial death march when I walk in a room, like, da, da, da. So I, I think you kind of shrink a little bit. And I think that that's unfortunate because now I realize that I missed so many opportunities to be of value to my MBA peers, to other minorities, um, other women in the industry, um, just by being present, whether that's in LinkedIn or in the industry events. Um, you know, I did plenty of networking, but I don't feel like I probably was as much of an advocate for myself as, as I should have been. So if there's one thing that I would do differently, I think I would have taken more opportunities to stick up for myself and probably also to advocate and to promote myself professionally um, because your reputation is important. And it's a lot of what you do on a regular basis and showing up and having integrity. Right. But I think there's an, you know, obviously there's a part to this that you get lost in the noise unless you have something to say and you're not afraid to say it. And I think that that fear sometimes probably to be fair got in the way of me really being out there. Lauren, this has been a, a great, a, a great conversation. Again, I've learned so many neat things about you personally. Um, uh, I'm just going to be very selfish to the podcast, almost beside the point, 
but uh, I, there's a lot here that we could have covered, didn't, and I know you've got you got a business to run and a weekend to get to. Uh, but um, you know, if 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 any of our listeners have a question we didn't cover, they want to go deeper into something that we did, can they contact you? And if so, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I absolutely love taking calls to help anybody. Um, I love to pay it forward and have on many occasions mentored um, young women, minorities, everybody. So I'm happy to talk to anyone who's interested in shifting careers, shifting careers into the restaurant industry, which I cannot advocate more, especially at this time, Um, you know, or leaving the law, whatever the topic may be. And you can reach me at fullcourse.com. You can actually book a meeting with me directly on our website, or you can just email me directly at lauren at fullcourse.com. That's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Lauren Fernandez so much for joining us and sharing her expertise with us. We'll be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us that we can help them. If you'd like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Bradyware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast. 